Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today, Kate is going to tell me a story. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded like uh, Dateline. (laughs) They're like, they think they're meeting up with a 16-year-old girl, but instead, they're meeting up with my fist. They don't say that, but like... (laughs) That's the vibe. I wish they did say that. That's so funny. I you know what I was just thinking this morning? I stopped <laughs> listening to true crime podcasts probably a couple of years ago. Like, I just hit a point where I was like, this isn't fun for me anymore. I actually feel like it's kind of exploitative, etc. Me on my, like, moral high ground. Um, um, This podcast is about morals. You're allowed to oh, yes. do that today. Okay. Perfect. One time only. Um, yeah, it just, like, couldn't stomach it anymore. But my algorithm has never forgotten and it recommends <laughs> of a, a true crime podcast to me every goddamn day. And I'm just like, guys, how long does it need to be until you realize I don't want it anymore? Infinity. Infinity. They'll never yeah, get over they'll it. They'll never forget. It's probably because I keep listening to like podcasts about scams. And they're like, so you would like, also like murder. And it's like, no, yeah. I've, I've stopped doing those ones. Okay. <laughs> true crime light. Okay. Um, it's like you watch one episode of Is It Cake and then you get a oh bunch God. of recommendations from your algorithm about shitty reality TV shows. <laughs> and it's like, get off my back, Netflix, okay? I saw this reductorous meme the other day that was like, when you're talking to a cute guy online and then it turns out he's cake. <laughs> I was like, this needs <laughs> to end. Cried. Okay, here's the thing, is I want to come clean. I've watched every episode of Is It Cake. <laughs> That's why it and keeps it is, recommending things to you. Because you're like, no, this truly, is stupid. Truly. And, and like, you, you watch play. five minutes of a show. It's like, bitch, you watch the whole thing. Like, what do you think is happening here? what it was about. And then you watch every episode. Well, now I know what it's I'm about. Just, like, I'm like still like getting the flow of the show. I just need to like experiment a little bit more with the eighth episode. That's what I'm like when I'm eating a dessert that I don't enjoy. I'm like, maybe I'll just have another bite and it'll be better. It's not. It's still bad. Maybe next time I eat it, it'll be the creme brulee I want it to be instead of this Oreo. Oh, God. Relatable content. Okay, so anyway, yeah, as Molly mentioned, today we're going to talk about moral philosophy, which I promise will be more fun than it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are going to follow the same format that Molly laid out so wonderfully Thank the you. last time that she did an episode for me, which is to say a summary and then um, some key takeaways or kind of exploration of the main issues. And then um, I'm going to read some passages from the book. And I'm going to try really hard not to go off the rails with this because there's so much to, there's so much content to talk about. Yes. But I really want to get to like the end passages because I think that's where the like meat of what will be a fun conversation is. Got it. And then throughout, I'm going to punctuate it with some questions for you. Okay. I hope you're ready because they're very hard questions. Oh my God. I'm ready. I've been studying. (laughs) What if I was just, like, asking you to solve, like, world hunger? Like, every question just gets harder. harder. I'd be like, well, first, I think everyone should watch Is It Cake? You know what the number one moral thing you can do today is? Support Mikey Day by watching Is It Cake? Okay. 
Ugh. I'm going to cut that out. My cough. Oh. Not the Mikey Day comment. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. <laughs> All right. So let's start with a summary. Okay. Today, I'm going to tell you about a book I read called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question by Michael Schur. Michael Schur is known for his work as a comedy writer, producer, and character actor. You're probably familiar with his work, which includes being a writer and producer for The Office and co-creator of Parks and Recreation and The Good Place. <clears throat> Leave it in. I really am going to fix my throat. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to keep all this in. People are going to be like, what the actual fuck? Um, okay. I was sick last week, okay? <laughs> I just get really defensive. <laughs> There's a there's a pandemic. Okay. <laughs> there's a pandemic. Okay. <laughs> Get it together, girl. All right. Um talking to myself. Me All too. right. So he was also the co-creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Rutherford Falls, which is his newest project. He also played Dwight Schrute's cousin Moe's on The Office, which is fun and also gives you a visual of what he looks like. That is one I wouldn't have known. Okay. He doesn't look like Moe's all the time. (laughs) That's kind of a mean way to put that. But anyway, uh, if you're unfamiliar with his show, The Good Place, it's a comedy that explores the afterlife and morality. And it became the jumping off point for his academic interest in moral philosophy that later became this book. Nice. That's cool. So this book takes on the topic of making moral philosophy accessible to a general public, but critically, he partnered with a moral philosopher, Todd May, to write the book. He interrogates 2,400 years of philosophy on what it means to be good. He explores the questions that philosophers have been exploring forever. Uh, What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is there something we could do that's better? And why is it better? Pretty simple questions on their face Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) not simple answers Uh, i do want to pause here and clarify that this is not an exploration of religious texts and morality so (laughs) so molly shut the fuck up right now (laughs) (laughs) what if that was my like way of hedging like so don't even start molly (laughs) okay no i just feel like it's like important it is different There is obviously a huge portion of moral discourse throughout human existence that is religious. And so he does, like, touch on a few religious philosophies, but the focus is on secular philosophers. Okay. In their theories. Got it. So, this book explores the three most influential concepts in Western moral philosophy. His words, not mine. Mm -hmm. Don't come for me if there are other people. (laughs) I don't know them. I don't know anything about I've read one book. book. Okay. This is essentially going to be a game of telephone. Like whatever Michael Schur understood from his philosophy professor, then I'm going to then repeat. That's how my book was too. Is what I'm telling you. Yeah. It's totally fine. (laughs) Uh, So the three main uh, or the three most influential concepts on Western moral philosophy are Aristotle's virtue ethics, Mm -hmm. Jeremy Bentham's theory of utilitarianism, and Kant's theory of deontology. This book is organized through a series of increasingly more complex moral questions that guide each chapter, starting with, should I punch my friend in the face for no reason? The answer is no. To, should I run into a burning building and try to save everyone trapped inside? Mm. Okay. Wow. That is the summary. That's so fun. I have some questions for you. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) Um, number one, would you steal bread to feed your family? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just kidding. 100%. <laughs> absolutely. No, I, no question. I'd steal bread for no reason. <laughs> I do that for the hell of it. 
<laughs> yes. 100%. I just like to steal, actually. It's just, like, really <laughs> exhilarating. Um, no, okay, real question. Yes. Um, how often do you think about morality or ethics in your day-to-day life? Um, pretty frequently. I, because I was raised religious, morality was something that was very ingrained in me as -hmm. something that we should think about um, Mm -hmm. and care about. And since being less traditionally religious, I still do think it's something that we should care about if we want our society to, to work. And a few years ago, I read a book that my dad recommended to me called The Righteous Mind. And I'll I'll look up the author so we can put it at the end. Um, but it was about like um, how how was morality created? It kind of like if you don't believe in a God, where is mm-hmm. morality coming from? And how does it develop over time? And from what I remember, this author was very focused on um, kind of the way groups and the need to survive over time has created the morality that we think of as kind of overarching. Mm, Uh, It was super interesting. And I do think about that a lot. And I, and I often feel very conflicted or confused about what I really think is the moral quote unquote moral decision. Mm, Yeah. Um, What's an example of like a small thing. This doesn't need to be like your Mm. existential crisis moments Mm -hmm. about morality. Like, what's an example of a small thing that you think about in terms of moral consequences or ethics? Okay, so I think that COVID has been a really good example Mm, of, like, small moral dilemmas that we've all had many times. Like, I, I, dating makes it so that I, like, am out with people more, Mm -hmm. but then I feel like I have a responsibility with people that I'm close to in my life to not like totally expose them just because I'm like totally exposed sometimes. So there's some like weird moral dilemmas I found myself in throughout the pandemic of like, well, I'm fine taking this risk, but now it means that I would be forcing someone else to take this risk Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out where is the line of appropriate and stuff is really just like fucking stupid. And I'm over it. It's so hard. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, that's a really great example. And something that since this book was written in 2021 is talked about in this book. Mm, okay. And um, he does talk about the pandemic as an mm. exploration of um, what we owe to one another, mm-hmm. um, which is a thought experiment or philosophy of contractualism, mm-hmm. which is a part of uh, deontology or kind of an offshoot, a okay. baby of, I don't okay. know, however you would say that. Um, which we will talk about in a minute. But I have a question for you first, actually. Yes, yes. What yes. made you interested in this topic? Do you just think about morality a lot? You know, expand. Um, why or why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. I think about morality a lot. I also uh, am generally interested in uh the various different ways that people think about what morality is and what it can or should be. Um, I think that I was mainly raised with the, like, morality of uh, Christian religion. Um, And I think that that has always been interesting to me. I was, like, a religious studies major um, and knowing, like, different uh, ways that other religions have looked at morality is really interesting to me. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I just think of the kind of the conversation and the fact that it's been happening essentially as long as mm, like humans have been recording their thoughts mm-hmm. and tells us that it's a really important conversation to keep having, yeah. even if our world is maybe at times harder to be moral now yeah. than it previously has been. Or the like gray areas brought in because of technology, social media are Mm -hmm. more i think it's more complicated maybe than it maybe used to be which maybe isn't true that's so easy to say when you didn't live in those times but Mm -hmm. well i think i think michael Schur kind of takes up that idea he took it up in the good place his show and also Mm -hmm. in this book where he says like it gives an example in the good place of like let's say that you want to pick um flowers for your friend And if it was BCE, you would literally just pick up the flowers and take them to them. But now if you want to send flowers to your friends, there are so many more consequences of your action. Because Mm. it's like, well, okay, so you either have to drive to a store, which uh, has negative effects on the environment. Mm -hmm. Or you have to order it through a company Mm -hmm. that may or may not be doing ethical practices. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the transportation of the flowers from one place to another and, like, that entire industry that you're tapping into. You know, it's just, like, it's so not as simple as it used to be yeah. <laughs> because we are now a global globalized society and we just interact with so many more people and our actions have such wider consequences in a lot of ways than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, like, a very fair... Uh, thing to point out that like that does make it harder to be moral and to make moral decisions because Mm -hmm. your decisions impact a lot more people than they used to in generations that were far earlier than ours yeah and i think many of us have heard that thing that's like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism which i think speaks to that that we we have to consume things, some things to survive. So in some ways, our hands feel tied around moral judgments or moral actions when it comes to participating in a capitalist system. And I, I'm not saying that because I think like all of capitalism is, is evil. I just mean that every action you take has a consequence that you might not wish for it to have now. Mm-hmm. Or like yeah. everything you buy has that kind of consequence yeah absolutely i think that's a really good way of putting it and also yeah that's part of what makes it so difficult yeah (laughs) to be a good person but also interesting to talk about yeah and and it's not something that he shies away from like Mm -hmm. this whole book is like it's really hard to be a moral ethical person Mm -hmm. but like here are some things we should think about yeah yeah well you can always be more moral like maybe there's no such thing as like perfectly moral but you Mm -hmm. can always get a little bit more moral in your choices or actions so i love that yeah okay let's get more moral bitches ready (laughs) let's get Get in bitches we're getting moral (laughs) strap in we're getting perfect Okay, so let's start with virtue ethics, which is one of the three most influential schools of philosophy. Allegedly most uh, influential. Allegedly. <laughs> 
Everything that I'm saying is just like hedging everything. I'm like, maybe or maybe not. I don't Supposed, know. <laughs> alleged, according to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so virtue ethics is attributed to Aristotle, who lived from approximately 384 BCE to 322 BCE. And it's the oldest of the theories that we're going to be talking about today. Virtue ethics defines good people as those who do good things and have certain qualities or virtues that they've cultivated and honed over time into a kind of perfect balance. So virtue ethics kind of has two key components, purpose and virtues. Okay. So virtues are things like you would imagine they are. So like bravery, temperance, generosity, magnanimity. How do you say that word? I think that's right. Magnanimous is how you say like Mag- as a quality. I can only say magnanimous. I can't say the entity of virtue. <laughs> we know. Whatever. Okay. Magnanimity? I don't know. Magnanimity. I think that's correct. Let's go with that. Okay. Because every personality trait is a double-edged sword, mm. we learned this in 30 Rock, uh, the balancing part of the virtue ethics is important. So, like, it's great to be generous, but if you're far too generous, then you could find yourself having given away all the resources you need to live. Yeah, yeah. And he thinks that that is bad, that we should have each of these great qualities in perfect balance. Aristotle thinks that's bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So he also defines our purpose or the thing that we're kind of striving for as happiness or more closely flourishing. So as Michael Schur puts it, it's the sense of completeness that flows through us when we're nailing every aspect of being a human. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't know if that's really relatable, <laughs> but <laughs> that's what he says. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so I think what is like attractive to a lot of people about this theory is that Aristotle positions morality as something that we can build through practice. Mm. So we can all work on these virtues, even if we feel if we were born with, like, less aptitude for bravery than kindness. Um, We can become virtuous by practicing doing virtuous things. And in this way, it reminds me of, like, a muscle that we need to exercise and build up. Got it. I like that. Does everything make sense so far? Yeah. And so far, I'm like, yes, I get this and I agree. (laughs) Totally. Aristotle nailed it. Got it. (laughs) So there are some obvious criticisms. I'll just like touch on those. We don't have to go deep into those. But it uh, sounds great to be striving for perfect balance of each virtue, but who gets to decide what's excessive versus Mm -hmm. deficient and what qualities are most important are some like obvious criticisms. Also, this is a great way of deciding between one good action and one bad action, Mm. i.e. should I punch my friend in the face for no reason? Yes or no. Uh, Obviously, there's a bad action, which is to punch your friend in the face for no reason. Um, But it gets immediately more complicated when you're deciding between a harmful action Mm -hmm. and a potentially different harmful action. Mm. Mm -hmm. So deciding between kind of levels of Mm. uh, morality becomes like pretty complicated with this theory. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. Any questions on that? I was just thinking that it You're reminds me. You're like all me... of it. What is virtue ethics? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Start at the beginning. <laughs> but I think we now have much different opinions about what a virtue is and is not. Yeah. Yeah. I I also think that's a fair 
thing to say because, I mean, let's say uh, fairness is a virtue. Well, like, fairness looks a lot different across cultures and, like, across the centuries. And so, like, even the idea of, like, a virtue that should be universal or something is something that changes over time. Okay, so let's talk about utilitarianism. Okay, yes. I love it. So, uh, utilitarianism is a theory that we should always strive to do the most good and the least amount of bad. Okay. Seems very simple. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, it's a pretty results-oriented school of thought. The journey does matter less than the destination here. Okay. In this way, it can be really attractive because it's giving us something to measure our morality against. We either Mm. did or did not do the most good. Okay. It's also perhaps best explained by one of the most famous thought experiments ever, the trolley problem. Uh, I love it. I've I've been thinking about this the whole time. It's the moral (laughs) argument that exists. We had to talk about it. When you asked me about my, like, moral dilemmas, I thought of that immediately, and I was like, I've never had that as a personal moral dilemma, so you can't (laughs) say that one. (laughs) Well, once there was this trolley... This one time I had a dream that I was operating a trolley, and on one side of the tracks, I would kill one person, and on the other side, I would kill five, and I chose to kill all of them. (laughs) And I I went all in, and I doubled down on death. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to let Michael Scherer explain this one, because it's fun. Yay. Uh, Most of you are probably aware of the trolley problem, because in some capacity, it's kind of ubiquitous now. So this is a quote from the book. He says, so, you're driving a trolley and the brakes fail. On the track ahead of you are five construction workers who will be smushed by a runaway trolley. But there's a lever that you can pull that will switch the trolley onto another track, on which is one construction worker. The questions are obvious. Should you do nothing, allowing five people to be killed? Should you pull the lever, killing one person? Also, why are these people working on active trolley tracks in the middle of the day? Who approves this? Jerry from Scheduling? That guy is so incompetent. I heard he only got this job because his cousin owns the trolley company. Okay, end quote. So funny. <laughs> this book is really funny. I bet I would it is. really recommend uh, reading it if you're in the mood for some laughs. Uh, so, yeah. So, essentially, in this trolley problem, utilitarianism would say kill one person because Mm -hmm. it's less bad to take one life than it is to take five five. uh it also kind of uses a calculator to determine how we can do the most good Mm -hmm. um or pleasure or goodness Mm -hmm. is measured by um and this is hilarious and also noted in the book as like super horny so these are the different ways that you measure this Uh intensity (laughs) duration (laughs) certainty uh, <laughs> purity, extent, uh, fecundity, propacuity. I should have looked up how to say that. Right. Um, and I think that's all. Okay. That's hilarious. Intensity. So, <laughs> not a good enough reason to use the word intensity. <laughs> <laughs> he literally wrote in a footnote. He's like, if you didn't think that he was the most, if like he was the horniest philosopher, you're wrong. <laughs> and I was like, clearly. <laughs> Length, um, girth, speed. <laughs> right, like, <exactly>. God, okay. <laughs> uh, awesome. uh, we we measure goodness about the heft of the breast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I love anyway. it. All right, so <laughs> uh, 
this is obviously also you can probably see where the criticism is going for this, which is that um, it's really complicated to measure the most good in right. a lot of situations. And you and will probably never know. Right, right, exactly. Like, often we can't tell if an action would um, had actually had the intended consequence or was related to the end result at all. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a lot of times immeasurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also gets pretty complicated when doing the most good would mean creating a lot of harm. Right. So an example that he gives is what if there are six people that come into an ER room um, and each one of them needs a different organ And there's a janitor in the back that's mopping and singing about how much he loves his organs and how healthy he is. Um, Should the doctor kill that one person to save the lives of these seven people? Right. Like, most people would say no. No. Because you're just taking this guy's life without, like... Reason. I mean... Right, without reason. reason, But but. also, like, it would save five or seven lives or whatever. So... Right. It gets eh, pretty complicated. I also think that with the trolley problem example, so if you choose to kill the one person versus the five, in this scenario, you don't know anything about those people. So maybe those five people are like child molesters or something. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. because you can't know everything, we're not omniscient, you can't possibly know what what action will cause the most good. So... I also always, this is like my inability to just accept the rules as they're like stated, but I'm like, why couldn't you come up with another solution here? Like, why couldn't you yell at those people to get off the track? Like, come on, let's be creative about how to solve this. (laughs) There has to be more than one choice. It also like the thought experiment is like there are maybe 2000 plus different Mm -hmm. variations of the thought experience Mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, so what if you're not even operating the trolley like what if you're just a passenger right like, what is your responsibility and what if like you're saying the five people are all known murderers or right. what if the, or not known like, murderers <laughs> right like what if they just are like really annoying at the grocery <laughs> and they don't use that little divider thing when you mm. go to check out and so then you're just sitting there waiting to put your own stuff on the belt and right. you're just holding it and you know, those sorts of people. Like, what if all yeah. five are those kind of people? <laughs> I mean, do they deserve to die? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back back in my church days, I saw a horrendous version of the trolley problem set into, like, a film to, like, meant to elicit emotional reactions from the practitioners. And it mm-hmm. was the... It was a trolley conductor in a little house. So he wasn't driving the train, but he was the one who had to make the decision. And the options were kill a bunch of people in the trolley and on the track or flip the switch and kill one person on the track that was his only begotten son. It was just like, (laughs) anyway, I'm done with this now. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) That was when I lost my faith, everybody. (laughs) It was that video. That's the most youth pastory it's thing in the whole trash. world. It's like, such you know trash. who had to make difficult choices? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Dad. Like, okay. It's horrendous. Yeah, but is that what we were talking about? No. <laughs> okay, so let's just move uh, on so on that one. Okay, uh, love it. Anyway, okay. So, uh, questions about utilitarianism. No, I get it. Makes sense. Have my qualms with it, though. Yeah, I feel like utilitarianism is maybe the 
easiest one to understand on its face. Yeah. Um, one of the more difficult ones when you start practicing it to situations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's move on to Kant. I love it. Deontology is the study of duties or obligations mm-hmm. and made famous by Immanuel, Immanuel Kant, mm-hmm. a German philosophy. Oh my God. A German philosopher born in the 16th century. Okay. He argued that the results of our actions are besides the point. Mm-hmm. We just need to determine a specific maxim and follow it. Mm-hmm. It's a much more rigid system, but it's also from the Germans, so we're not surprised. No, not at all. Uh, he also doesn't believe in happiness. LOL. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds great. It's <laughs> <laughs> happiness is imagined, and therefore the idea of chasing after it as a life purpose is irrelevant in this theory. <laughs> okay. Also, LOL. Okay. <laughs> he advocates that before we do something, we should think about what the world would look like if everyone did that thing. And if we imagine a world that was all screwed up, then we shouldn't do that thing. Okay. So he approaches ethics as a strict exercise in logic and reason. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, there's also an offshoot baby of this theory called contractualism. Uh, which asserts that as a society, we create reasonable rules to follow and mm. then all commit to adhering to said rules. Mm. So it's the conversation of what do we owe to one another. Uh, it also encapsulates a lot of uh, different thoughts from around the world um, that, you know, this like worldview that being human and connected to other people mm-hmm. is uh, one and the same. Mm. So, like, your experience of being human is also uh, inseparable from your experience of being human with other people. Okay. Got it. Um, did that make any sense? Uh, yes, it did. It did. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to keep checking in. I'm like, did I do it? <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> did I say words in an order that made any sense at all? Uh, okay, so obvious criticisms of this one, uh, maxims take time to tense out, to tease out in any given ethical quandary, so we most often do not have the privilege and uh, time of this when we're in the moment, so mm. like if you're faced with uh, an ethical dilemma, you most often do not have the time to say, you know what, let me think on this for a week and think about what is the universal standard that I should be following in this situation. And then I'll get back to you and apply it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, following maxims can be really tricky when you're choosing one universal truth over another. It can kind of morph into a choose-your-own-adventure thing. Yeah. So, like, when you're faced with a situation, you can follow the uh, truth of, like, never lie. But you could also follow the truth of, like, um, don't cause harm or something you know Mm -hmm. like you can kind of like adjust Mm -hmm. it to the situation that you're in in a way that would allow you to sort of sidestep some tough issues yeah definitely um so this is like most often um thought of as as pretty impractical Mm -hmm. (laughs) so he gives an example that like if your maxim is never lie Mm -hmm. and then uh your Uh, like a murderer comes to the door and says, hey, uh, I know that your brother is upstairs and your brother is upstairs Mm -hmm. and I'm here to murder him. Tell me where he is. Uh, And then you can't lie. Right. Like that's like pretty tricky and also doing harm because now you're putting your brother Mm -hmm. in harm's way by following this maxim. That's maybe not the best thing to follow in that moment. Yeah. Yes. 
I also think that like any time I hear about a philosophy of any sort that really deals in absolutes or black and whites, I am instantly skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it's so rigid. And anytime that it's like based in, it's like quote unquote based in logic. Something that stayed with me the most from that book, The Righteous Mind, was that he talks about how often when people are talking about morality, they think that the best way to make decisions is with pure logic. But I can't remember if he referred to a study, like he was a a researcher in maybe sociology or something. So I can't remember if he was referring to a study or what. But he was demonstrating that actually people make the best decisions when they combine both emotion and logic. And if all Mm. you have is logic, you're actually incapable of making decisions because you don't have a motivating factor for doing so. So Mm, even if you are, you think you're just making logical decisions, you're not. So the people Mm -hmm. who are the most self-aware and able to make good decisions are the ones who recognize that they have emotions involved too. And as an emotional TM person... I'm very much right. like, yeah. <laughs> totally. I'm valid. And, so are my and I'm better at this than you. <laughs> like I've been saying, I'm perfect. Exactly. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> um, so yeah, anytime I'm I'm faced with a like, logic is the only true and good way, I'm like, ugh, snooze fest. It also like, I'm with you. It also irritates me because like, some people are incredibly emotional thinkers, mm-hmm. but call it logic. Yes. And men. like IE men. <laughs> I just did the same. The president, <laughs> every president we've ever had. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But like I think there's uh uh I don't know, there are a lot of like connotations when someone says logical. Right. Right. And it doesn't always get applied um in the same ways Mm -hmm. and so like that also makes me skeptical because i'm like do you really mean logical or like do you mean thinking about this the way a man would think about it right or Or do you mean like angry you know what i mean (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you just mean angry (laughs) yeah no absolutely (laughs) yes i totally that that is exactly what i think too is like "Mm, is that really what you mean by Mm, logic yeah (laughs) yeah okay so now i have a question for you Mm. Given everything that we just talked about, yes. which of these theories seems the most attractive to you or, like, interesting to you? So there's virtue ethics, yes. which is, um, you know, thinking about virtues and having a perfect balance. There's utilitarianism, which is doing the most good and the least bad. And then there is um, the one I just forgot, <laughs> deontology, <laughs> which is following universal maxims or truth right. um, and not focusing as much on the result. Okay. So in terms of interest, the ones I'd want to talk about the most are the deontology mm-hmm. and the middle one. What, what do you call that? Jesus. Utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. Those two are the ones I would probably be able to talk about the most, but the one I definitely live by the closest is the balance of virtues. I am a I'm a Libra baby. Mm-hmm. Give me balance. I want both both and. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. I also I don't know, there's something really attractive to me as someone who I feel like can get easily discouraged about mm-hmm. um not doing the best yeah yeah (laughs) um about like virtue ethics which is Mm -hmm. just like you know 
practice. Yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, it's it's kind of simple in that way. It's mm-hmm. just like you didn't do as good, like keep practicing, you know? Yes. And like eventually, obviously we won't be perfect, but hopefully mm-hmm. we can get to a point where we are more perfect, more moral yeah. than we used to be. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. So now to the meat and potatoes of hell. Hell yes. <laughs> okay. So um, there's something that I want to read to you because I think you'll find it interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we should keep it in because okay, it might but be too long. long. I want to do it. But let me read this to you just because I think like you specifically will find okay. this interesting because I really did. Like I really connected with this. Okay. So he's talking about um, a specific philosopher who uh, is named Judith... Sklern, a Latvian professor who wrote extensively about freedom and liberty. So her family had to flee Latvia to escape Stalin and then had to keep fleeing to escape Hitler. And after finally reaching America, uh, this woman got a PhD from Harvard and became the first woman ever tenured at Harvard's government department, which like dope. Awesome. Great. Good for you. And uh, she's Jewish. And in her masterwork, ordinary vices she makes a compelling argument that cruelty not pride or envy or wrath or any of the other classic deadly sins Mm -hmm. is actually the worst human vice and should be placed atop the list of things to avoid so this is a quote from something that she wrote to put cruelty first she writes is to disregard the idea of sin as it is understood by revealed religion sins are transgressions of a divine rule and offenses against god however cruelty The willful inflicting of physical pain on a weaker being in order to cause anguish and fear is a wrong done entirely to another creature. So Michael Scher goes on to say, When we think only of religious sins as the ultimate bad stuff we want to avoid, we end up manufacturing justifications for horrible atrocities. For example, as the European conquerors coming to the New World, encountering its indigenous peoples, And rationalizing genocide as the will of Christian God. If we elevate cruelty, transgressions against other humans, to the top of the worst crimes we can commit list, we can no longer find and exploit any such loopholes. Mm. So, basically, what she, and by extension he, is saying is that cruelty is actually the worst thing. Yeah. (laughs) And it's the worst human vice. And... Uh, when we, like, elevate religious sins above cruelty, we can then justify cruel actions Mm -hmm. in the following of those religious ideals. Yeah. So I thought you would find that interesting. definitely do. And I feel like my dad and I, we usually talk every Sunday, and we end up having this conversation every time. Yeah, I think what's attractive to me about this and and probably to you too is the recognition that like if you live your life that cruelty is the worst thing, then there's no justification for being cruel. And I think that's really important and not something that I was taught in a religious context. Yeah. Because in a religious context, there is in all religions, there are justifications for cruelty in yeah. a lot of ways. And they're not maybe framed that way, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. Yeah. And I I understand when you have that worldview why you would think ju- or cruelty can be justified, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you have that, like, dichotomy of, like, good and evil. 
it makes a lot of sense that if if what you if the cruelty is being inflicted on people or things that are evil then it seems fair and reasonable yeah but i think when you step back from those black and white views you recognize that actually this is all gray and just because someone did an evil thing doesn't necessarily mean that they that it is justified to use cruelty against them and it's really much more complicated than I think we wish it was because it would be it would be easier if it weren't gray and we could just be like yes they're evil wipe them out <laughs> it'd be so much easier yeah like it would make all of our lives so much easier if we could just be like yes or no yeah exactly <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah so I have another passage that I really want to get your perspective on because I think it's um really relevant to our current time okay our zeitgeist oh love it <laughs> big word so this is a quote. Um, so, okay, let me preface this by saying that Michael Schur in this section is talking about enjoying problematic things. Okay. So uh, being a fan of a uh, baseball team, for example, that is using a mm, um, slur mm-hmm. for indigenous people as their mascot or watching a and loving a movie by a director who's a known pedophile mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. we yeah. all have a billion examples of this unfortunately yes alas okay i uh he, he's talking about um uh an author who had written about uh apartheid in africa okay and um i won't read the whole thing but um, this author writes about the reasons for an Africaner nationalist might perpetuate apartheid, even in the face of its inherent moral rot. Okay. So this is what this author writes. He sees it as a way of life, a world outlook by which to create for himself the social order after his design. History to him is a continual unfolding experience whose real validity lies not so much in its being a guide for the future as in being a justification. When pressed to modify it, he is bewildered. In his view, all of this is tantamount to saying he should renounce the world he has created for himself. And that's the end of the author's quote. And mm. this is Michael Schur saying. Okay. Saying this world is problematic amounts to saying I, who have helped build this world, am problematic. For people deeply invested in the way things are, any change would mean confronting decisions they've made that created or sustained the troubling reality. Mm. And it doesn't have to be something as huge and society-wide as apartheid. Recently, many people in the LGBTQ uh, plus community have made requests regarding which pronouns people use when addressing them. This might be because some people are born with a physiological gender that does not match the gender with which they identify, or it might just be an aversion to gendered pronouns themselves. The results were predictable. Some people adapted quickly, granting this minimally intrusive request, Other people, dot, 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 didn't do that. (laughs) They dug in their heels and refused to budge. They have been doing things a certain way for a long time. They understand that version of their world. And any altercation of that world causes stubbornness or outright panic. So Mm. that's the end of of the passage that I wanted to read. I am curious, like, what you think about that. And then I also have some questions for you. So what's your first, like, response to that? I agree my experience lines up with that phenomenon that 
as as I deconstructed a lot of what I saw as my Christian faith, I had to grapple with a lot of things that I had done that I then felt were really morally wrong, in fact. And I it is very painful and uncomfortable to go through that. And I, so I understand why people don't. But I think that it's the right thing to do to try to investigate your motives and actions and see if you are doing it because it really truly is the right and good thing or because you were told to do it and investigating it would mean looking at a lot of hard things that you don't want to look at. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it and definitely is something I've also experienced Mm -hmm. where like, yeah, nobody wants to do this work. No. Like, it's, it's not fucking fun. Like, nobody's sitting around being like, you know what I'd love to do today? Deconstruct how I've been a really a moral person mm-hmm. and how I <laughs> have done harm to people and my and how that's a part of my identity and how it's mm-hmm. also inextricably linked to things that I love. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do that today. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Especially... Like sit down and do that. It's especially exhausting when you see that you did harm even when you were intending to do good mm-hmm. because you have to face the fact that your intentions are not the end all be all just because you mm-hmm. wanted it to go well or to to mean this to someone doesn't mean that it will and so yeah. you have a responsibility not just to set your own intention but to think about how it might affect another person and that takes work and that sucks <laughs> yeah it does and it also takes like a a great amount of work um, in being empathetic because yeah. you also have to put yourself in their shoes and understand like, why was my intention not received the way that it was? Right. Well, if you have a completely different kind of, I don't know, maybe cultural perspective mm-hmm. or um, life experiences or lived experiences, then yeah, it makes sense why their perception of your action was not what you thought it would be. You know what right. I mean? So, like, that, there are so many layers to it, mm-hmm. and it's not a fun time. No, <laughs> But that doesn't mean not. that it's not necessary or important or uh, just really, uh, yeah, necessary work. There are a lot of benefits that you get from mm-hmm. doing that work. So it's not just about making the world a better place. It's also about making yourself a better place place to live in you know yeah so i think it's worth doing even if you're only doing it for selfish reasons yeah i agree i i think i really uh connected with this passage because it does seem to be um timely Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. uh, as we start to think about how our society is changing a lot socially Mm. that being able to admit that not only is this world problematic but I, who live in it, who participate in it, who have helped create it, am also partially problematic. Yeah. Is, like, a really important thing to be able to say out loud. Yes. And <laughs> I know? think, like, we... I I do think we're seeing it kind of maybe going to more extremes where more and more people are willing to be like, you're right, I am a part of a problem. And then also more and more people are refusing harder and harder see, to see how they're... Par- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, not only am I not a part of the problem, there is no problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's So that's been a little disconcerting or unpleasant the last couple of years to see, like, yay, people are willing to, to you know, grapple with their actions. And then 
oh no, lots of people are absolutely straight up refusing to look at reality. That's cool. I have another question about this packet or this passage, okay. which is um, how do you feel about problematic faves? Uh, how do you reconcile enjoying things that have also caused harm or by by human beings who have caused harm? Mm. I, I'm a Libra, okay? <laughs> how many times can I say that on one podcast? You bucket? just keep saying that. <laughs> My morality is Libra. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I, so what I mean by that is that, like, I'm not an all or nothing. I think there are definitely... Mm-hmm people or companies or whatever that I would have nothing to do with even if I had enjoyed a product or a a movie or something that they produced at one point but I don't necessarily think I, I don't necessarily judge other people who are still consuming it like Louis CK for example I never care that much about it so it's maybe not the best example but even if I had really loved his work I don't think today that I would consume it very frequently but I don't, I wouldn't shit on anyone who is consuming it. Uh, like, I think actually 30 Rock is probably the best example because 30 Rock is definitely problematic at different points through the show. But mm-hmm. that show meant so much to me when I was watching it for the first time that I'm never going to be like, oh, yeah, I would never subscribe to that show or, or whatever it's never going to lose the meaning it had for me, even though now I do see the ways that it has a lot of problematic characters or jokes. Yeah. And I think that that's just how we have to maneuver things is to be the worst thing you can do is pretend like it's not problematic. Don't do that. Yeah. Except that it is. And except that like sometimes we participate or enjoy things that are problematic and that's just part of the human experience. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think the worst thing to do is pretend like you you don't see it or actually not be able to see it for fear of losing something that you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, like, I, again, a lot of this can actually be a part of our constructed identity. Like the humor that we appreciate, the mm-hmm. movies that we watch, the pop culture we consume, the sports teams that we root for, like all of that is kind of a part of our constructed identity. And so it does feel personal, even if, we don't personally know Tina Fey. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that like, it can kind of take on its own importance in our life that we uh, can attribute or assign to it. Even if that wasn't, it's kind of like only purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to read this quick quote by uh, Michael Schur, because what you said is almost exactly what he writes. And I love that. Oh my God. Yeah. So he writes, um, the most important part of becoming better people. I'll say yet again, is that we care about whether, what we do is good or bad mm-hmm. and therefore try to do the right thing. If we love a problematic person or think too much um, to part with it altogether, I think that means we have to keep two ideas in our head at the same time. Number one, I love this thing. Number two, the person who made it is troubling. Forgetting about number one means we lose a piece of ourselves. Forgetting about number two means that we are denying that this thing causes us and others anguish and thus we're failing to show concern for the victims of awful behavior. We can think both of these things at the same time. And if we do, if we really confront the wrongs of the artists as we consume their work, instead of making excuses or living in denial, we can to some degree forgive ourselves for keeping them in our lives. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's so good. And I, know. I was I thinking that that the black and white thinking is what prevents us from being able to do that. Because if you, 
in that world, you think, well, if this person's bad, then I can't participate in this thing. And so your options are accept that they're bad and lose the thing I love or pretend that they aren't bad and keep the thing I love. And when that's your dichotomy, then it's really difficult to make the quote unquote right choice. And there isn't actually a right choice. And the only thing that you can do sometimes is to hold those two opposing things at once. But I don't think that we're taught how to do that very well. And No, I don't think so either. And so I think we default to not hearing the truth about someone or a company or whatever in order to keep a hold of something that we love. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only option. We can hear the truth and let it like evolve in our minds over time while we continue to enjoy something that we love. Until maybe we reach a point where we don't feel the same way about that thing anymore. Or maybe we continue to, but we have at least a better understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So, God, I wish we got better at that. (laughs) (laughs) I also think, too, that it extends to individual people in our own lives. And I agree that doing an all or nothing is really dangerous for Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. But not least because when we take on this idea of all or nothing... It means that we have to think of the people that we love as perfect, mm-hmm. lest we uh, not love them. Yeah. So, and I think that that's, like, really important to be able to say, like, you know, I really love my spouse, but guess what? Mm-hmm. At the at their kid's soccer game today, at our kid's soccer game today, when they went off on the re- referee and screamed in his face, like, that was really uncool. Yeah. And, like, yeah. instead of saying, like, no, they deserved it and that ref should die, yeah. you know, like, yes. things like that, like, on an individual level, I think it's really important to say, like, and, and hold each other accountable that, mm-hmm. like, if the people in your lives um, did something bad, like, if you were friends with Louis C.K. personally and you were really disappointed by his actions, to be able to say, like, I believe those women. I believe that this happened. Mm-hmm. I believe it was wrong, but I can still love him as a human being who has likely been a good friend or yeah, you know, who has done good things good in his life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And like being unable to hold both of those things at once means that we are constantly like uh, positioning people as either perfect or evil. Yeah. And that's just not true for any person. Yes. And so I think that that thinking becomes really dangerous in just a, like a, a interpersonal level too. Yeah. I've had this experience since leaving organized religion where every so often I'll be like, I'll, in, I'll be in this rhythm and I'll be like, yes, I know what to do here. Like I'm this person. I can't associate with them anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Like I can't abide by their worldview and I'll be really like rolling with it. And then I'll just realize that, oh, this is just Protestantism repackaged in like a different form. I'm still doing the same things I learned to do for years and years. It's just from a different viewpoint now. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I'm very prone to it to be like all or nothing, even though mm-hmm. I've gotten much better at being <laughs> two things at once. So yeah. yeah, it's, I think it's like a, a reflex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, like, a a part of it is that, like, Christian theology is pretty common in America. So, like, yeah, m- yeah. most of us are kind of, like, familiar with that. But mm-hmm. I also think it's just, like, 
what you said easier. It's mm-hmm. or what you said earlier. It's much easier yeah. if you can just be like, well, this person's evil and this person's not and this person's perfect because I love them. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that would be much easier to never have to admit that like someone that you love deeply, like your son or daughter is also incredibly flawed. Yeah. Those like recognitions are really painful, mm-hmm. but that doesn't like make it any less true you know yeah and so like those sorts of things I think are are important to be able to do on an interpersonal level as well as on this kind of like parasocial mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. Um, where you're talking about like your relationship with a piece of art or you know whatever I yeah. mean I one of my favorite movies is uh, Rosemary's Baby mm. and the director uh, was accused of um, or I guess, is an alleged rapist and, like, a child abuser um, because the person that he sexually assaulted, allegedly, um, was 13. And so, and then he just, like, fled the United States and never was, nothing ever happened to him. Oh, my God. But, like, also, does that make me, like, like the movie less? Like, not not the movie itself but like yeah I think about that now every time I think about the movie like I can't I can't ever separate those two things right like those always have to live together now yeah one of my favorite movies is directed by Woody Allen so I feel the same a very similar thing it's like and the movie like meant a lot it still does it means a lot to me but like yeah now because he also stars in the movie and so it's just like this fucker but (laughs) Why does he always have to also star in his movies? I don't want to That should be you. a red flag anytime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, when I saw Annie Hall, that was one of my mm-hmm. favorite rom-coms mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a long time. It's, I still, like, yeah, love that movie. Of I mean, but, yeah, it is, it's, oh, it just sucks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, I still love it. I, it still means what it meant to me. I still can enjoy it. But you do have to hold the truth of the creators of this piece of art that you love in your mind mm-hmm. and i honestly yeah. the like masochist in me is like that makes it richer that's the human <laughs> experience okay <laughs> the good comes with the pain that's a part of it <laughs> we just go back to whispering now i mean whatever um, you gotta okay. tell yourself to get through it <laughs> so uh, okay so i have one final passage that i want to talk with you about yay and the ending of this book is a coda that he writes as a letter to his two children. Uh, he has a daughter named Ivy and a son named William. And uh, Ivy is nine and William is 12 at the time of him writing this. Okay. Sorry, Ivy is 10. Okay. William is 12. Okay. Okay. So in this coda, he essentially like goes through and applies all of the ideas that he talked about in this book Mm -hmm. as a way of summarizing what he talked about, but applicable to his children Mm. in this letter format. Mm -hmm. So I would love to just read the last four pages of this book, (laughs) but I won't (laughs) do that because that's insane. Um, And like, calm down, right? Like nobody needs that. Um, but I would do it. I'm going to. Um, this just turns into an audiobook. Like, I just read the whole <laughs> book aloud. <laughs> Why was that podcast episode 13 hours long? Well, <laughs> well let me tell that's you. pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, halfway through, I just lose, lose my voice, but I keep going. And by the end, it's just like, <laughs> Molly is like logged off 12 hours ago. 
Anyway. Uh, anyway. Okay. So I'm going to read essentially the the last several paragraphs of the book. Okay. It is long. Stick with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth yes, reading. Yes. I'm, I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So he writes. You want a real quick start guide for how to live a good life? A guide so pithy you can have it tattooed on your arm with plenty of room to spare? Know thyself, nothing in excess. Earlier in this letter, he writes that that was written in a Greek temple? Question mark? I don't know. Somewhere. Mm. Okay. There's more, of course. You can't just use that. But maybe start there. Being a good person is a job, and a hard one at that. But if you care about it, it may start to seem less like work and more like a puzzle you can solve. And in those rare times when you have to make a decision and you assemble the pieces in exactly the right way, so the image of what you do comes sharply into focus, you will feel alive and fulfilled and elated. You will feel like you're flourishing, which is really what mom and I hope for you. We want you to be safe from harm and from the pitfalls of the specific lives you're leading. We want you to be happy, not in the eating pizza with your friends way, but in a deeper, more lasting way. We want you to be good, to act with good intentions, to cause minimal harm to those around you, to abide by rules you'd want everyone to follow, and that other people wouldn't reject as unfair. We want you to apologize when you screw up, and we want you to try to do better the next time. Doing all of these things can help you flourish, to be the very best versions of yourselves. But again, there will be plenty of times when you do not flourish, when you straight up blow it. And then you'll try again, and you'll blow it again, over and over, and you'll be frustrated, and you'll feel awful, and if you tried to do something good a thousand times, and you failed a thousand times, and the people around you are miserable, and you're at the end of your rope, and you're losing faith in yourselves, you know what we want you to do then? Keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Mm -hmm. And then he just signs it, love that. Oh my god, I love that. I know. I'm like, I already, I've read this through like four times and I'm like, I'm still misty. Me too. That's so <laughs> lovely. Yeah. I just think it's like a perfect way of summarizing how fucking hard it is mm-hmm. to try to be a good person, but how important it is to keep trying. And that's yeah. really all we can do. Yeah. Something I've thought about a lot in the last, like, I don't know, a couple of years where like a lot of relationships and things have not gone the way that I wanted them to, like not necessarily because I failed, but just like, you know, how things go. Something I, I, like, you experience that disappointment, but I try to remind myself that it's good to try. Like, you learn things when you try to have something that you want or to try to do something. And even if it doesn't go the way that you want or that you, if you fuck up or whatever, you still, it was still good to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the um, Brene Brown Mm. uh, talk on vulnerability that we had. Yeah. Of, like, even if you try and something doesn't go your way, at least you tried um, based on your values. Yeah. Like, if your your value was be brave, be courageous, then, like, the very act of trying itself fulfills that. And I think, like, I really love that way of thinking that, like – Again, not only is being moral not an all or nothing, but, um, like, 
trying to be moral is not all or nothing. Yeah. Like it's it's a practice, it's a process, it's something that we have to keep doing mm-hmm. because we only get better at it by continuing to do it. And I really I don't know, just really love that idea. Yeah, I do too. And I feel like it's a good a timely message to be considering. Mhm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I was thinking about earlier um, and, like, how difficult it feels to be a good person mm-hmm. in this era mm-hmm. was, like, I – so recently I bought some new clothes on a, a, an app or store or whatever called ThreadUp, uh-huh. which is a secondhand store. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to be more um, conscientious about, like, what I'm buying and where I'm buying it from. Mm-hmm. And so – I was like, oh, I want some new dresses, but I'm going to buy them secondhand and um, for environmental reasons. Yeah. And I <laughs> got the dresses, was really happy with them, like thought they were really cute, mm-hmm. like decided, you know, I'm not going to return them, like going to wash them, whatever. And then like a few days later on Twitter, I saw this thing about microplastics and started reading about how when you wash uh, pieces of clothing that have... Uh, materials like polyester Mm -hmm. in them that they release microplastics into our water system, which then end up in the ocean and can be incredibly harmful to the environment. Yeah. And it was such a like deflating moment because I was like, damn it, I I bought secondhand, (laughs) but yet like they do like the one dress Mm -hmm. is like partially polyester or whatever. And I was like, and, and still it's like not good enough. But it's also, like, a reminder of, like, okay, well, you don't have to, like, the the best option would not be to, like, throw that dress away now. Right. The best option would be to, like, continue wearing it, wash it not as often, Mm. maybe as you would wash other clothes. Yeah. Um, Maybe purchase, like, a a whatever, a wash bag. Yeah. Yeah, that, like, is better for washing that material. Mm. And then next time you go shop, pay attention to the materials of the things that you're buying. Yeah. And... It was like, but it's like a process. And I think like it can be very exhausting to have processes like that happen to you in all different facets of your life all of the time. Yeah. (laughs) And like he does talk about this thing that he calls moral exhaustion, which is like not a philosophical term, but is exactly what I'm describing of just being like so exhausted of having to make moral choices that you kind of feel like maybe you should just give up. Yeah. But I think it's um like incredibly uh motivating and like um i don't know uh renewing rejuvenating mm-hmm. to think of it more as like no you just need to keep trying you know yes yeah and like small actions or small attempts still count they still build towards better things than not making attempts at all mm-hmm. so yeah yeah, I I think that well, it comes down to the title. It, it says how to be perfect, but that's not actually the goal. The goal is to just try. I actually heard about something recently that I, I feel like I've been embracing in the last few years without really knowing about it, and I forget the term that the person used. It was just something made up, but it was basically like I've stopped showing up to something or telling myself that I have to do something a hundred percent in order for it to be worth doing. And they used the example of working out and they said, now I'll half ass at a, half ass a workout all the time if that's what I need to do. Because otherwise I wouldn't have done it. But now yeah. at least I'm like doing something instead of nothing. 
And I definitely feel like given everything that's happened in the last few years, I don't have a hundred percent of myself to devote to almost anything. So like I've been doing it with writing a lot lately too. Not getting a hundred percent. No, like that least of all a workout. Um, But yeah, I, I've started doing this thing too, where I'll set a timer for like 15 minutes and I'll just write for 15 minutes, like Mm -hmm. working on this thing I've been working on for years. And before I used to think like, no, you have to have like hours set aside to work on this to like get a lot done. But I Mm -hmm. wouldn't do that for months. And now it's like, well, now I've been doing 15 minutes like every few days. And that actually adds up to a lot more than like two hours once a year. (laughs) No, for real. (laughs) So I think we can think about these sorts of things in the same way. Yeah. Uh, Perfect is the enemy of good enough. Yes. That, you know. I live by that so much these days. And I'm I'm very much a good enough person. (laughs) I think my entire adulthood is that yeah. phrase. <laughs> yes. Because honestly, like, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I I have talked extensively about, like, living with a chronic illness and how that's mm-hmm. changed my perspective on things. Mm-hmm. But this is, like, very much one of them. It's just, like, yeah, just just do as much as you can today and that's enough. And then tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll do as much as you can again. And some days that'll be a lot and other days it'll be not as much. And that's okay because you can't do a hundred percent of the things every day because then at some point you'll hit a week or a month where you do zero percent because you're so burnt out and you're so exhausted. And like, I think thinking about like sustainability is a lot more important in like incremental ways um because you're right like little things add up to a lot more than like a hundred like running eight miles one day and yeah. then not working out for another three months because you that like, was too much hold a hamstring <laughs> yeah and you know what yeah. I yeah mean? or you just hated <laughs> like, it so much that. like you can't yeah yourself. yeah or yeah or, like you it felt like such punishment that you can't like motivate yourself to go back and yeah. like move your body at all like yeah. yeah that's a good example yeah but I think that it's it is really tiring, but when we take it in small steps, it's less overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also when we have, like, support, too. You know, like, to be around other people that also care about doing trying good things. and doing good things morally is, yeah. is important, too. It is. Cool. Well, I... You did so good. I'm so glad that all the things that I said made somewhat mm, sense. So and then sense. somebody who actually have a has a basis in moral philosophy is going to listen to this and be like, um, you didn't do it. <laughs> I think you did. And that's what matters. My opinion only. <laughs> someone discussed. someone who also doesn't know bit. anything. <laughs> Half-assing it is better yes. than not doing it at all. <laughs> Instead of the Parks and Rec quote that's like, whole ass one thing, we're yeah. half-assing two things now. It is the era of half-assing multiple things because that's better than doing one thing super well. Okay? I think. Just everybody half-ass everything. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I do have a couple of pop culture pairings that I've already mentioned in this episode. Um, Everyone should go watch The Good Place. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. It's hilarious. It's also about morality and it makes you feel good and warm and cozy. Um... Also, Rutherford Falls is great. It's another one of Michael Schur's shows. It's about um, more of these kind of like hot button issues that are like 
have always been issues, but just are now entering the popular mm. consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, it stars a woman who is um, Native American, and there are a lot of, like, uh, and at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are a lot of, like, uh, discussions in their friendship about, like, what does it mean to be, like, proud of your uh, white heritage in a place and also grapple with the harm that your white ancestors did yeah. to Native Americans and then also be friends with a Native American mm-hmm. in the current day. Mm. Um, and, like, grappling with each of your histories, I suppose, yeah. is a better way to put it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And then also BoJack Horseman, which I've also mentioned on the show show before, but probably has one of my favorite quotes of all time, which I think I repeat to everyone all the time, which is, um, it was in regards to like addiction Uh and depression, but I think it applies to literally everything, um, which is, uh, it gets easier every day, but you have to do it every day. Hmm. Yeah. Which are also words that I live by. Yes. And it came from a cartoon horse. And I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> that shit's real. Okay. A cartoon horse who's an alcoholic and like depressed. And I'm like, he's the smartest person like, that I've ever wrote that met. line. <laughs> um, no, that's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes I don't do it every day. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Me really leaning into the half-assing things, you know, but sometimes it's every other day. Sometimes my morality takes a break. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, I'm super excited to talk about a book that Molly is going to tell me about next time. Yeah, I'm doing, I'll announce it because it's for sure happening. It's called Hype by Gabrielle Bluestone, and it talks about the culture of internet scammers and specifically tries to answer the question why do we keep falling for this and she focuses a lot on firefest which was just like the best i i i read the book and then i immediately went back to the netflix documentary and then the hulu documentary watched them back to back for a second time it was like give me more i can't get enough of this and we're still pissed at the algorithms for recommending like yes i know and it's like (laughs) bitch it's because you can't stop listening to stuff about scammers it's like i know but that's different i know but it's different and shut up (laughs) um yeah but it was a really good book and i just think it will open up so much conversations that i mean we're kind of having all the time and i love it yeah Yeah. nice well i'm excited so tune in again next time for more of our bullshit leave it (laughs) it's like a halloween (laughs) spooky